Hang on just a second here. Love <laughs> Sorry. Talk Radio. February the 12th, 2021. Uh, we are delighted here tonight to be joined by our very special guest, none other than Chip Carey. He is the uh, voice of the Atlanta Braves. He'll be with us here momentarily. And uh, Alan is joining us here tonight as well. Of course, the name is in the title of the show. So, Alan, good evening. How are you tonight? I'm doing wonderful. I'm really doing great. Feeling awesome now that the, the Bucks are Super Bowl champions. Glad to <laughs> <laughs> glad to be on and glad to be living here in Tampa Bay, that's for sure. Well, I tell you what, that game did not go quite the way I thought it would. I thought it would be a, a closer shootout, and it was more of a shooting. So, um, But uh, congratulations. You're absolutely right to the Bucks. They certainly deserved it, and Tom Brady is, uh, is certainly the greatest, and uh, he has proven it once again with his seventh Super Bowl win. So, Tonight, as I mentioned before, uh, to our listening audience out there here on Blog Talk Radio and on iHeartRadio and through our uh, Facebook page, our guest here tonight is Chip Carey. If you're not familiar with Chip Carey, you probably don't really watch sports. He has been a longtime uh, voice in Major League Baseball. He spent some time with the Cubs and, of course, has for the last oh, 15 or 16 years uh, been the lead voice with the Atlanta Braves. Chip, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Definitely appreciate, definitely appreciate your time. So I want to get right into it. We are on the doorstep of another Major League Baseball season. This is always probably the most exciting time for a fan of any team, for that matter, you know, whether it's the Braves or, you know, whoever it is. Um, how excited are you? as a broadcaster looking forward to the 2021 season? Uh, very much so. Uh, look, we all know what uh, our nation went through. Our sports certainly went through in 2020. Uh, yes. You know, this time last year, uh, the Braves were very excited. We had a new spring training facility. We were getting ready to open. Very excited about that. Thinking about our team uh, with Cole Hamels and all that he and Felix Hernandez were going to bring. And uh, the first, uh, you know, couple of weeks of camp, things were going great. And then the plug was pulled about four or five weeks later. So that was very, very hard. And, and once the plug was pulled, I think many of us thought, okay, you know, the old 50 days to, to flatten the curve and we'd be back in business. Well, that didn't happen, obviously, until late July. So, um, you know, it's <laughs> I think the term you used is, is exactly right. I think we're all looking forward to getting back, getting back to as close to normal as we can this year, as soon as we possibly can. And for those of us who depend upon these games to feed their families, uh, getting them all in is really, really important. So, uh, you know, that aside, I'm, I'm very excited about our team, really excited about what Alex Anthopoulos has been able to do. And uh, the fact that this team last year, with all the pitching problems they had, got to within one game of the World Series. Uh, I think the fortifications that they've made in the starting rotation and the offense and Ozuna coming back uh, 2021 should be a, a really, really exciting year for Braves baseball. And we can't wait to get started for real here in the next couple of days with pitchers and catchers. And then, of course, opening day on April Fool's Day. Absolutely. And I was actually going to bring that up there. You mentioned uh, Ozuna coming back. It was basically this time a week ago where we were a little surprised and maybe a little relieved at the same time that he signed the uh, long-term extension. I think most people kind of thought one and done, kind of like Josh Donaldson. 
how important was the extension for Ozuna to this team contending and really being at the top here in the East in 2021? Well, very much so. Uh, well, yeah, look at the year that Freddie Freeman had with Ozuna hitting behind him. He won the MVP in the league. Uh, look, mm-hmm. Marcel is not going to win a gold glove in the outfield. He's a serviceable outfielder. And I think everybody's betting on the fact that we're going to have the DH in 2022, and that's assuming we play and get started on time, and there's no uh, player on a running court, which I don't think would be the wisest course of action in the midst of a pandemic, but that's a story for another time. Uh, but Ozuna was great in the clubhouse. He was great with the players, great on the bus, great on the plane. We weren't around that. We didn't get to see that firsthand for obvious reasons. Um, but look, what he does on the field, and he's is, is really, really important. He's a banger. And when the DH comes, you can put him uh, in the DH spot and turn things over to Drew Waters or somebody else. Uh, one of the Braves' farmhands that were making an acquisition to uh, fill his spot in left field. But, uh, you know, look, offensively, uh, the Braves were a tremendously dynamic and powerful team last year. It's not going to be as powerful this year because they won't have the DH. But getting Ozuna in the middle of that lineup, hitting behind, uh, you know, Acuna and Freeman and and Ozzie Albies potentially, I mean, that's a big bat. It's a big threat, and that gives the Braves a one through three or one through four that's as good as, if not better, than anybody else in the National League, if not Major League Baseball. So uh, the fact that it took so long is uh, a testament to uh, how crazy the baseball business is. It's inconceivable to me that they still aren't sure whether we're having a DH or not next year or this year. (laughs) That's still a possibility. Uh, I, I just don't understand that that business model. But uh, like I said, I'm just the I'm just the boob that reads the cards and says ball two. So I'll leave that to the experts to figure out why that happened. But uh, certainly for certainly for Marcel, his, his market went from 30 potential teams to 15 overnight, and that's the real crime for other guys like him and Nelson Cruz and others who are you know in this stage of their careers. They wanted some idea of what the heck they were going to be able to do. And uh, once it became clear that there really weren't too many suitors other than Tampa Bay and Atlanta, I think Ozuna made the wise choice to come play for us. And uh, hopefully he'll have as big a year this year as he did last year and have a great career and finish it with the, with the Atlanta organization. Yeah, that that I definitely think. And, I, again, I was really surprised. I was driving actually home from Tampa last week when I got a alert saying that he had signed. I thought maybe it was a joke at first because I know that kind of the way things have gone the last few years, it's, one and done, and we'll move on to somebody else kind of a thing. Um, as far as the favorites in the East right now, and I've seen uh, a few different of the places out there that make the predictions, and I think it's probably still too early to say for sure, but I, I saw Dakota, I think it was, said we were going to finish in fourth place. Um, the Mets are at the top. Um, it seems like every year that they can't seem to give the Braves any sort of credit at all, and yet you know, even after Soroka went down with a season-ending injury last year, you said it before, one game away from going to the World Series. I mean, it seems like this should be a team that's uh, more heavily favored than they are. Yeah, well, I agree. Um, look, it, it, it's it, picking the Atlanta Braves to win the division doesn't sell newspapers. It doesn't sell headlines like picking a team from New York might. Uh, that's with no disrespect to the Mets. Look, they had a great offseason. They really did. New ownership, their general manager uh, situation wasn't wasn't good at all. They solved that. Um, But, you know, getting a guy like Francisco Lindor in your ball club is a huge, huge acquisition. It's a big one. And if they got Trevor Bauer, then you could understand why Pocota people might have said, wow, with Syndergaard, with DeGrom, and with others on that, Marcus Stroman and others on that uh, pitching staff, they'd be a really, really fearsome club. 
Uh, but let's face it, Pakoda hasn't been right about the Braves in each of, of the last three seasons, so I don't put a whole lot of credence in that. Uh, will there be regression? Probably. It's going to be 162 games, not 60. I don't think anybody expects Freddie Freeman to be a 6, 7, or 8 war player uh, over 162 games. He could be, but that's probably highly unlikely. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's going to be an unbelievably tough division. Uh, the team that I would be more apt to say would be the biggest threat to the Braves would be the Nationals. And the reason for that is they have four stud pitchers. Uh, when you can go Strasburg, Scherzer, Corbin, and now John Lester, that's pretty damn yeah. good. And with that yeah. lineup that they've put together, uh, they're going to be very, 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 very good. They're going to be playing with a chip on their shoulder. They want to get back and, and get back to the top of the division and get back into postseason play after a, a really, really bad 2020 season. So, uh, you know, the, the oldest saying in sports is, you know, the games aren't played on paper. you got to go play the games. And at the end of the day, in the National League East, the team – to beat has been the Atlanta Braves for the last three years, and until somebody knocks them off, that's going to continue to be the case. And um, I think that the way the Braves go about their business and the way that they play their games, they give their young players a chance to play. You mentioned the farm system and the organizational depth. That's a great credit to how these players are drafted and developed. And when they get to the major leagues, they have a chance to stay because they're ready. And I think in this season, more than any other, the organizational depth that has been so, so uh, talked about with the Braves is going to be hugely important. Again, we're going from 60 games to 162. And the stress level and the difficulty of maintaining the health and overall well-being of your 26-man roster is really, really going to be tested uh, in in 2021, perhaps like no other time. So uh, in that regard, I feel very good about the Braves' chances. I feel very very good about their young pitching depth, and I feel very good about the fact they know what it takes to win and the things they need to do to get past the Dodgers, who are probably the odds-on favorite to to get to the World Series again in 2021. So got to play the games, and uh, we'll see where uh, where the Braves stand once that game 162 is played in early October. And I think equally um, equally as happy that I was last week when I saw that Ozuna had signed with the Braves to, to stay was that the Mets did not end up with Bauer. That would have been – it would have been hard to disagree with the, the Pakotas and the different uh, predictions that are out there, I suppose, had he well, ended up the, in New York. With, you know, with all due respect, with, with all due respect, the Mets are the Mets, right? Every year yep. they're picked to win and they don't, you know, so yep. – um, look, are they, are they going to be a better team? Absolutely. Uh, they can't afford Pete Alonso having a, a, a 2021 season like his 2020 year was. Uh, Dom Smith's got to find a way to play. Uh, I don't know where they're going to play him. But getting Lindor in the number one spot, McNeil hitting second, you know, you've got Alonzo and Conforto. And, you know, I mean, that's a pretty good lineup. It's a pretty good team. And any club that has a great pitcher like Jacob DeGrom is going to be a threat. And you know how tough he has been for the Braves to handle. So, uh, as I said, no disrespect to any team in the division. I think it's going to be the toughest division. Uh, the Phillies and Marlins are, are going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, fighting it out, I think, probably for third place or fourth place in the division. Both of those clubs give the Braves some trouble, and the Marlins made the playoffs last year, so they're hungry. Um, you know, if you win the East, you're going to earn it, and it's not going to be handed to you. It's not going to be like the Central Divisions in the National and American League where somebody's got to finish in first place by acclamation. Uh, the team that makes the playoffs coming out of the East is really going to have it. I think that's going to serve them well in postseason play as well. I agree. I think this is uh, this is the division that's kind of what the AL East had been, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, we had three or four really solid teams. Alan, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. No problem at all. I definitely thank you again for being on our show. It's really, really astonishing. And I wanted to ask you a question, Chip, that 
being that you come from a generation of broadcasters, is that does that add like experience to yourself when you're doing a game, or is that more pressure because you have a generation that's in front of you of broadcasters? Speak about that as far as being a broadcaster and you're upcoming into becoming the Braves announcer and, and also the Cubs. Not a little bit of both. Um, you know, my, my you know my parents were divorced. My grandparents were divorced, so I didn't see my dad or my grandfather much growing up. I think the perception of me and my family was that I was born with this golden microphone, and they put it in my hand before they gave me a feeding spoon, and we'd sit around the table and talk about war stories of the 1945 Cardinals and Pete Maravich and all that. That never happened. I didn't see uh, my dad or my grandfather very much at all growing up, and not really much at all until I became uh, the broadcaster of the Magic. Um, and when I sort of achieved some some professional success is when uh, I was really more noticed by my grandfather and my dad was in Atlanta. I was in Florida starting my own career. So, uh, you know, we didn't really have that much op- of an opportunity to interact. That said, neither one of them ever pressured me to go into the business. Uh, my grandfather kind of did that to my dad. My dad said, if you want to do something else, go ahead. And uh, I went to Georgia and had a very influential professor there who, who almost guided me into law school. Uh, God knows the last thing the world needs is another lawyer, much less another carry broadcaster. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, you know I, I, I just sort of fell into it. It's something that I love to do. For whatever reason, I have the gift. I can, I can describe what I see and can entertain an audience and can tell a story and get us on an air. And as I said, be the guy that can read the promotional cards for the most part without screwing it up, um, <laughs> as well as you know, uh, as well as uh, make my partners look good. So. Um, you know, that, that's kind of how I fell into it. It's what I could do. It was my gift. Like everybody else, I would have loved to have been a player. I wasn't talented enough to do that. Um, so the next best thing for me was uh, being able to talk about baseball. And uh, you know, when I'd have visitations with my dad, I'd go to the ballpark and sit in the booth with him and Pete Van Weeren and Ernie Johnson and keep stats and join the TBS production crew as an intern and uh, went and did games that way. And, and the old saying, the bug really bit me, is kind of how – uh, how it happened. And uh, luckily for me, Pat Williams in 1989 uh, saw a tape of mine and got a recommendation from Bob Neal that there was another carry in the business. And he hired me almost sight unseen with no basketball experience to come down and be the voice of the magic uh, when they started out and was there for seven great years, which led to the Cubs and then to Fox and Seattle and then Atlanta and, and on and on. And you know, here I am now, 55 years old, going on 56 soon, and uh, in the midst of doing baseball in the major leagues for about, for about 30 years. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. I mean, definitely, it's the way you've came and where you're at now. It's you know, it's it's outstanding. And I would have to say, is my question to you is, when you get to the situation where you know you mentioned that you can see the game and analyze and entertain someone, when you do have to say something that's not flattering about a player. Have you ever been nervous about that, giving constructive criticism for a baseball player? Uh, ner- nervous, sure, because I, I think so many of today's players, uh, well, let me back that up, let me say that, in anybody in their vocation, any criticism, you know, your, your career is your vocation, it's part of who you are. And sometimes criticism of that, I think, is taken personally. Uh, I think the really, really good broadcasters are the ones who can make a criticism that in no way is personal. Uh, we are there to evaluate a performance on that particular day. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll just use this as an example. If Freddie Freeman goes over four strikes out and commits two errors and the Braves lose a game 11 nothing, am I saying that Freddie Freeman's a bad husband, a bad father, a bad person? No, I'm not. I'm saying he had a bad day at the office. And unfortunately for those guys, or fortunately, 
they are being asked to perform on a very bright stage, and that's why they are paid with their pay. They're very highly paid entertainers uh, who are expected to perform at a very high level. Some days they meet their own levels of expectation. Sometimes they don't, much like broadcasters. Um, and I think it's you know the the job of ours is at least as mine uh, as the play-by-play guy. I don't think is necessarily to critique a performance as much as it is to say what's going on. To me, that's the job of the color analyst who, in more, in more cases than not, played and can understand how difficult uh, that uh, requirement to perform can be. Um, but look, I, I, I never make it personal. Uh, I've said to Joe Simpson a million times on the air, I don't know how anybody ever gets a hit in the major leagues. And I have such great respect for the fact that anybody who gets there uh, and, and, and wears that uniform, because every team that that player has been on, he was the best player he's ever <laughs> on every team. I mean, think about that. You know, Chipper Jones, until the last couple of years of his career, never finished anywhere but first place. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> uh, I never played. I've never hit a fastball. I've never thrown a curveball. I've never made a running catch in the outfield. So for me to presume that it's easy, I think is disingenuous and wrong. Uh, but I can say, you know, watching guys in the major league level, saying you know that's a play that a major league guy ought to make. That's fair. And as long as you don't keep, as long as you keep it away from personal, uh, then those kinds of comments are, are, are fair game. Some guys react to it a lot better than others. Some guys hear it firsthand. Some guys hear it secondhand, and that's usually when you hear about it. And my response to that has always been, well. Yeah, I, I don't think that I said anything that was unfair or unprofessional. Why don't you go back and look at the tape? And if you do feel that I crossed a line, let's sit down and look at it. We'll talk it out. And in my, as I said, 30-year career, uh, I've given that opportunity to at least five or six different players. And every single time they've come back and said, you know what, you're absolutely right. Forget about it. And so, um, you know, I, I understand the sensitivities. I understand the uh uh, the, the social media and the branding aspect that a player feels with regards to his career. And believe me, nobody wants players to play better than I do because it sure as heck makes my job a lot easier. But as I've also said, I'm not willing to, uh, I'm not going to sacrifice my credibility uh, and try to uh, pull all over the audience's eye for a guy uh, who's making tens of millions of dollars. That's not my job. It's his job to play well, and if a player doesn't like what a writer writes or a broadcaster says, there's one simple way to fix that. Play better. <laughs> <laughs> and the, fan, yeah, the fans definitely agree on that. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> now, You brought up there uh, a few of the you know individuals you've worked with over the years. Um, as someone who's been a Braves fan for basically 30 years since the run started in 91, you mentioned obviously uh, Pete Van Weeren, um, who I always just love listening to, uh, love listening to your dad. Obviously he called the 95 world series, the 92 NLCS. And obviously he had a great sense of humor in the eighties because the team wasn't very good. And you had to have some entertainment right. value kind of added to it. And he did an excellent job of, of, um, of keeping the fans interested uh, in watching the games, of course, on TBS. Uh, we, unfortunately, about a month ago, uh, lost Don Sutton, and I know you worked with him over the years. Tell us your you know, fondest or best memory of Don Sutton. Uh, well, you know, Don was just a consummate pro. Uh, nobody could break down pitching as well as Don did, and I think that, you know, Don would be the first to tell you that he – didn't like being pigeonholed as an analyst. Um, Don enjoyed doing play-by-play. 
uh, Don wanted to do a lot of different things, and, and I think, uh, you know, that's to be respected. You know, he wanted to be more than uh, – uh, just a guy that talked about pitching and I'll, I'll leave it at that and uh, say what you will, whether you thought Don was a great play by play guy or not. Um, when it came down to describing what a pitcher was doing or what he was trying to do or breaking down the batter pitcher matchup, which is, which is the essence of the game. Uh, Don was, was really, really outstanding at it. And, you know, in those days when with Joe and Don and my dad and Pete, you know, on TBS where everybody did radio and everybody did TV, you really got four unique and different perspectives on the game um, night after night. And, oh, by the way, the fact that you're in the middle of winning 14 straight divisions with, you know, six or seven Hall of Famers playing for your team uh, certainly made it must-see TV. So it was a golden era for some golden uh, personalities, some big personalities, and, uh, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, you know, Don was a guy that wasn't afraid to ruffle feathers. And, again, like that or not, there were, uh, you know, several players who didn't appreciate the way that Don described the way that they were p- performing. Um, but you know what? Don, uh, Don's philosophy, I, I believe, uh, was his job was to critique the players. It wasn't the player's job to critique the answers. And so he, he <laughs> being in the Hall of Fame, gave him, I think, a certain cachet and a certain um, – shall we say, carte blanche to, um, you know, do what he thought was right uh, to the best of his ability night after night. And I think, uh, um, you know, those uh, those four guys, along with Ernie Johnson, are the reason that guys like me and Joe Simpson and Jeff Francoeur and Tom Glavin are sitting in the chairs we're sitting in. They paved the way for us, and uh, there's not a day that goes by where we're sitting in that broadcast booth that we're not eternally grateful for, uh, not only their wisdom and their guidance, but uh, – uh, the, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, for the, uh, uh, the roadmap of how to, how to do the job and to, to do it yeah, right, to do yeah. it fairly and, and to, to reward. And, and I should say to, to, uh, um, uh, bring the game home to, to, you know, our great fans across the Southeast. Well, I yeah. will say for me, um, in the 1990s, and like I said, I started, uh, following the Braves because of TBS, because of the, the run they started in 91, uh, all those individuals you just mentioned and yourself, you were a part of it too, were, uh, you know, the soundtrack of my, you know, summers as a kid. And, um, you know, as we see, as we get older and we see some of these guys that are, are passed on now or who, you know, have moved on to doing something else. Um, it is kind of strange because you look back and you say, wow, I really appreciated that. I appreciate it a lot more, a lot more now than I maybe did back then, kind of looking back at it. I've got to ask you this question because I know you're this year, who knows what's going to happen last year, obviously the travel wasn't there, but when you look at the schedule, when it comes out every year, is there a particular uh, opposing teams broadcaster that you just can't wait to see? Like for instance, if you were seven, eight years ago going out to LA, I'm sure you wanted to see Ben Skelly. Is there somebody now that you look forward to? I got to go pick that guy's brain kind of thing. Uh, not so much pick brain. It's just it's it's more you know we develop friendships, and I think that's that's to me the, the part of last year that was so hard. You know, I think I think TV executives and fans and uh, people don't understand that ninety percent of our job is relationship based. You know, when we can't get into a room and talk to a player about what's going on, that we don't have a feel uh, for you know what's really happening with the team, and that as a consequence, uh, you know, affects the way that the game is broadcast. And that was the hardest part last year. Look, we we have great relationships with the players, but if if we have six people texting Freddie Freeman for a question, he's not going to have time to do his job. 
if we have 20 people trying to get in touch with the manager via text, he's not going to have a chance to do his job. And so that arm's length distance, I think, affects our broadcasts more than anything else because, as I said, our ability to walk into the to the clubhouse or stand by the cage or talk to somebody on the airplane or in the hotel lobby getting coffee the next morning, that is so, so critically important as to how we broadcast the games. And until we get that back, you know, there's a big chunk of it that's going to, that's really going to be missing. But to answer your question, um, you know, as I've gotten older now, I'm, I'm beginning to be one of these senior guys in the, in the game, which is kind of scary to think about. Um, you know, so guys like uh, Dan McLaughlin with the Cardinals, great friend. Uh, you know, we, we kind of kept each other off the ledge the last year with all the craziness that's going on in our business and with our company. Uh, Tom McCarthy and the Phillies announcers are awesome, great people. Ron Darling with the Mets. Uh, fantastic. Just a, just a, you know, one of my partners with TBS, great, great human being. still close with Steve Stone, who was for years my partner with the Cubs. Um, but that's, that's again, the, the great thing about our job. You know, it's a, it's a very small and very select fraternity and we're all very proud of that. And I say, we say that without any, any arrogance, but there are only 30, you know, number one TV guys, uh, covering a major league team. And I'm fortunate enough to be one of them. And I think all of us have a great deal of respect for the guys that have the job because we know how hard it is. We know the pressures that are involved. We know the responsibility of it. And we relish the fact that we are a conduit between the game and our fans. And uh, anything we can do to help uh, make that uh, connection stronger, uh, either through storytelling or just being consistent or just the timbre of our voice, as you said, being the soundtrack of summer for, for people over the course of uh, six, six and a half months is uh, is a very, very rewarding thing and not something we any of us take lightly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the, uh, amazing that you got that opportunity to, to be a broadcaster. We're, that's just, that's wow. I mean, not too many people get a chance to do that, to be in a booth and get up close and personal with the players. And, and I wanted to really, since it is February, it is Black History Month, Chip, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on passing and the thoughts of Hank Aaron and your, your interactions or any stories that you have with uh, Hank Aaron. I wanted to get your thoughts on, on him and what he meant to the Braves. Well, he was, I mean, he was the Braves. I mean, he personified them. Uh, this will take a little while to get to, but uh, you know, people have to remember, um, you know, 55 years ago, um, you know, the Braves were in Milwaukee. And we were thinking Bill Bartholomew was going to bring the Braves from Milwaukee to Atlanta, uh, to the South, the segregated South. And uh, Bill Bartholomew uh, went to Mayor Ivan Allen and went to all the chambers of commerce and said, look, we're bringing Henry Aaron to Atlanta. We're bringing the Alus to Atlanta. We're not going to deal with segregation and we're not going to deal with, uh, you know, the over racism that we, that we saw uh, that took place in our country. Uh, Bill Bartholomew had a vision. He told me in a, a, a dining room conversation we had in Chicago two years ago that at the time when the Braves came to Atlanta, Birmingham was the bigger city in the South, but he envisioned Atlanta representing the new South. And when the Braves came, they were the first major league team uh, in the segregated South. Now think about that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, he was able to um, show the world that there was a new South that was beginning to rise, a new South that would make things better and more equal for everybody. And uh, through his genius and his hard work and players like Hank Aaron, who became beloved 
uh, for what he did on the field and what he represented off, um, Atlanta did rise and, and, and live to the live up to its its uh, motto, resurgence. You know, to rise from the ashes like the phoenix. And uh, you know, Hank Aaron personified all of those things. A uh, great man, um, humble man, a uh, very quiet man, always with a smile on his face. Uh, one of my favorite memories was opening day uh, last year when you know we're quarantined, but Hank Aaron and Andrew Young. We're sitting in a box, and we had them on on the air. And uh, you just talked about his memories of coming to Atlanta and what that was like. We had him in the booth two years ago. And I'm sure if you go on Google, there's a picture of Hank standing at the train station. He's 16, 17 years old with everything he owns in his satchel, a gray shirt, black and white photograph. And he's getting ready to get on the train to go to Indianapolis and play for the Indianapolis Clowns at the old Negro Leagues. We put that picture up on the TV screen because I found it. And I said, I, I want to get your thoughts, Hank, on, on, on this is you, uh, you know, in 1947 or whatever the hell year it was. And he said, my God, I haven't seen that picture in years. And he said, what's funny about that is I was wearing my sister's shoes. Those are the only shoes that I owned that fit me, and they were my sister's. Now think about that. He's wearing his sister's shoes, a flannel shirt, pennies in his pocket, everything he owns in a suitcase, leaving Mobile, Alabama to go play professional baseball. And in that instant, he, nobody in the world would have known that that's the man that would have broken the home run record of Babe Ruth and become one of, if not the greatest player in the history of the game. Um, those kinds of memories, those kinds of interactions were, uh, were, were priceless to me and, and ones that I'll never forget and certainly enjoyed when we uh, were given the opportunity to talk to him. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And man, he's a great man and definitely he will be missed. And we miss him here already dearly. We had a uh, Daryl strawberry on the, on the show the day of his passing and he shared his thoughts too. So to get your insight is wonderful. I did. Ha- I, I did have a request from somebody to, to tell you hi. Jay Galman told me he's one of your sure. fraternity brothers. I don't know if you remember from yeah. Ty Delta at I university do. of Georgia. He was not going to let me <laughs> – I was going to be able to live another day if I didn't tell you that. But he wanted to tell you – Well, thank hi. you. Tell, tell him and I He was excited hello. you were going to be on the show. I, I would definitely tell him that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a couple of uh, additional questions I wanted to ask you, Chip. This is just from over your 30 years or so in the business, kind of the where were you moments. Um, obviously – for me, probably my two, maybe three favorite calls that you've made. Um, I came home on a May afternoon in 1998 from being 10th grade and turned on WGN and caught the last uh, couple innings of the 20 strikeout games. That's probably the, the one that's seared in my memory the most. Um, Jason Hayward's opening day home run in 2010. Um, a few of those Chipper Jones walk-offs at the end of his career – uh, were certainly big, but I always have wondered sometimes where someone is when a certain thing happens. And we asked Daryl Strawberry where he was in uh, 1986 when the, the Buckner play at first base happened. There's two two particular moments in Cubs history that I wonder where you were. I know you were still with the Cubs in 03. When Steve Barton became famous, were you at the ballpark that night, or where, where were you when that happened? What was your perspective? No, I was not. I was actually I was actually at home with my wife. Uh, we'd been down in Miami. Uh, for some reason, the Cubs didn't offer me tickets to go to the playoff games, which is kind of strange, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> uh, uh, my wife and I were actually at home 
And I take that back. Well, we were at home in Winter Park, Florida, where we lived at the time, and some friends of ours had a restaurant and invited us in. They, they closed the restaurant. It was just a husband and wife and my wife and I, and we were sitting down having a glass of wine and watching the game, and uh, they had champagne out. They brought it out, and I said, put that away. And they said, why? I said, we're talking about the Cubs. And sure enough, uh, you know, the Bartman play happens. Alex Gonzalez has an error. You know, the Cubs melt down. So they said, all right, well, they're still alive. They have game seven. So we went back to the restaurant game seven. Kerry Wood hits the home run. We're thinking, oh, okay, the Cubs are going you know, to do this. Well, again, it didn't work out. So uh, I was in Florida. I was watching the game on TV. And, uh, uh, you know, for those people who didn't believe in curses and billy goats and all that kind of stuff after that series, I, it made me a believer. I was like, really, this can't possibly be happening. Um, because uh, the 0-3 team was really good, and so, and so were the Marlins. And the 0-4 team was actually built to be better uh, than the 0-3 team, but they did, they just got hurt. Pryor got hurt, Zambrano got hurt, Kerry Wood got hurt, and it was really, really a struggle for them all year long to get any kind of traction. Ultimately, they didn't make it. So, uh, yeah, I was actually at, uh, at, at, out to eat with some friends and my wife uh, in uh, Winter Park, Florida, watching the game on TV just like everybody else and being so close to it and feeling, uh, you know, knowing the fans in Chicago and how much they wanted that experience, wanting to get to the World Series, uh, you know, made 2016 really, really special for them. And I was lucky enough to be in Cleveland working for one of the Chicago stations uh, for the Cubs World Series Championship. So seeing that kind of raw emotion finally exercised and the Cubs finally getting over the hump and doing what many thought would be the impossible, even though I wasn't a part of the organization, the old saying, once a Cub, always a Cub, there was some truth to that. I was really, really happy for all involved. That was actually going to be my next question is, uh, where were you in, in 2016? And, um, just as a baseball fan in general, um, <laughs> when uh, I forget the outfielder for the Indians who hits a home run late in the game that, that basically tied Davis, it up. I thought, yeah, Dave, yeah it was, I think Chris Davis. Um, when yeah. he hit that home run and Cleveland erupted, I thought, oh, my goodness, now now I believe in these curses too. So, um, Well, you're, it's funny you say that. We were standing with about 250, 300 media people down below because it was raining. Uh, we were down below in the depths of the stadium waiting to go on the field to do our post-game reports. He hits the home run, and everybody looked at all of the um, the press people, looked at each other, all the broadcasters, all the camera people looked at each other and said, oh, my God, they're going to blow this. Because, you know, it's just, you know, the, the fate of, 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 cut, of, of cut them. Uh, but they had the rain delay, and then, you know, obviously they got it going in the extra innings and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the rest took care of itself. But, yeah, there, were, there was always sort of a fatal, you know, fatalistic thing. You know, the, the Cubs thing were just doomed and cursed to, to never uh, you know, to never get over that hump. Uh, but I'm glad they did. You know, I wish Ron Santo had been there to see it because he would have gotten so much joy from that. I know my grandfather would have been overjoyed to be, to be able to be there in person and see it, but I, I firmly believe they were there in spirit. And, you know, for the Cubs fans and the people who, who, whose families waited generations for an opportunity to be on top of the world, uh, again, not being from Chicago but working there and, and being accepted so well by Cubs culture and by Cubdom, uh, I understood it. I understood what they were going through. And uh, to be in that hallway when Joe Madden came out of the locker room after they won the World Series and he hugged his wife with his baseball with his dad's cap and his lineup card in hand, I, I snapped a couple pictures on my cell phone of him hugging his wife and achieving – you know, something that nobody ever thought possible. And uh, those kinds of relationships, as I said, those kinds of moments to me are priceless. And why those of us who really love the game know and appreciate uh, uh, to, to relish them and, and, and never forget them. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
Oh, go ahead, Alan. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, God, I was just going to say that's that's fantastic experience that you get a chance to to see these moments that most people just can just watch on TV and you get right there and you're right there in the broadcast. And speaking of the broadcast, what is more difficult to do a basketball game or a baseball game? Um, I think baseball um, because there's no clock, uh, you know, with the NBA, you know, you have, you have uh, uh, mandated timeouts, you know, you have 12 minute periods, you know, you're going to be in and out of there unless there's overtime in, in two hours. Uh, you know, in baseball, you can have a 19-inning game, uh, or you can have a rain delay, or, you know, you can have, uh, you know, in the first inning, you can be down 14-2, to two and you've got to entertain people for another two and a half hours. Um, and there's so much dead time in baseball that I think that, that it, it requires a, a really a deft touch. You know, our philosophy is pretty simple. We inform and entertain. And, um, you know, what's great about baseball is there, you, you can use silence as an unbelievably um, big weapon in your, in your, in your arsenal. Um, you know, when Jason, you mentioned the Jason Hayward home run, he hits the home run. I say, welcome to the show. And I didn't say anything for like three minutes. What else could I say? You know, so that was Vin Scully's philosophy. You know, the, let the crowd, let the crowd, let the crowd be, you know, let the crowd be your metronome. And I, I really try to take that to heart. And he's right. Um, you know, but I think I think baseball is a lot more difficult um, because you just don't know what's going to happen. If if somebody blows out, then you've got to figure out, you know, uh, you know who's going to take his place. There's so much strategy. There's so much thinking about what could happen. And and Monday's game has impact on Friday's game, and Tuesday's game impacts Saturday's game. And if you don't keep up with it every day. Um, you really can get in the weeds pretty, uh, pretty quickly, and that's I think part that, that that I think is the artistic part of it, um, and the the uh, nose to the grindstone part of it. Baseball is every day for six months, and if you count spring training and you count uh, playoffs, it's really eight and a half months every day. Uh, baseball, you know, there's 21 days off and 183 days, and four of those days off are for the All Star Game. So do the math. You get two days off a month. Uh, during baseball season. So it's, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're in Atlanta, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're in San Francisco, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're in Colorado, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're in Arizona, you fly home, have a day off, and then you play again. Um, that's the nature of the job. It's, it's, it's a, it's a big time commitment. And luckily for us, when the season's over, we go home, we don't do anything for a couple months um, to, to kind of get our feedback under us. Um, but I think that's, that's, that's the inherent challenge of our sport is it's, um, it truly is the most grueling pro, uh, professional sports marathon that there is. And, uh, the guys who can do it and do it well, I think deserve a great deal of respect. Uh, yeah, definitely. One guy I could tell that you have a, a lot of, I would say fan spirit for when you announce the games is Chipper Jones. Can, can you kind of enlighten us your whole thought process about Chipper Jones as a player and getting a chance to meet him as a, as a man. What are your thoughts about Chipper Jones? Uh, great guy. Uh, you know, he and I bond, you know, we, we'd sit on the plane and just talk about life. We never really talked about baseball, uh, uh-huh. you know, cause that's, you know, that's, that's for him. That's, that's probably as annoying as someone sticking a pen and a piece of paper in his face every five minutes. Uh, <laughs> Chipper's not that complicated. Um, he's really not, you know, when to keep your distance, you know, you can ask him anything, uh, when he wants to be, he is as uh, gregarious and outgoing and full of information as he wants to be. And there are other days where, you know, things may not be going so well and he just wants to be left well enough alone. And that's cool. That's again, part of the deft touch that people who do our job have to understand, uh, about their interactions with people. You've got to be able to read the room. 
and uh, with Chipper, uh, it was very, very easy. Uh, the game to him, he was one of those guys that the gods touched, and the game looked easy. Freddie Freeman's like that. Mike Soroka's like that. Uh, you know, Juan Soto for the Nationals is like that. That's why those guys are great. Uh, their ability to slow the game down uh, and let the game come to them uh, is really, really remarkable. And uh, I didn't get to watch Chipper every day of his career, but I got to see him at the end. And uh, watching him do what he did and the way that he did it uh, was was awesome. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer for a reason and uh, proud to call him a friend and really looking forward to seeing what he can do with our, uh, you know, with our hitters. He's going to be doing some part-time uh, special assistant on the field uh, coaching yeah. uh, w- with the guys this year, which is exciting. Now, what that means for him long-term, don't know. You know, he's married and has young children, so I doubt he wants to deal with the grind of, uh, you know, 162. I don't presume to speak for him, but I'd be surprised if that were the case. But, you know, anytime you have a sounding board like Chipper Jones or a guy like him in your organization, you're not going to talk to him, then you're stupid. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. You know, I'm happy. I'm happy he wants to be back and wants to be around, and I'm looking forward to picking his brain about uh, things he sees that we can use in the broadcast. How do you think he did uh, this past year? I know it was an abbreviated season, but he was – Obviously, broadcasting with ESPN. How, how would you grade him on how he uh, how he did there? I'll be honest; I didn't see a single game of his because when they're working, <laughs> yeah. we're working. So, yeah, I, you know, true. And, and I kind of have a I kind of have a hard fast rule. When when I'm done broadcasting, I don't watch any other games. Uh, you know, I I watch enough baseball. You know, I'll wait for the highlights and stuff. And it's not for me to critique other people, but uh, I'm sure that uh, like anything else, um, as he did it more, he got more and more comfortable. But so much, again, as I said, of what we do is based upon being at the site and being there and seeing with your own eyes instead of dealing with, uh, you know, uh, watching it delay off a TV camera um, and not having the ability to talk to guys and go see things and, and just absorb them by osmosis makes it a lot tougher. But, you know, Chipper Jones is a Hall of Fame person, Hall of Fame player. It wouldn't surprise me if he did a fantastic job. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll get him in the booth in Atlanta sometime and he can join Jeff, Tom, and me and we'll have a, you know, just – and just uh, go down memory lane. I think that'd be a blast. Certainly would be. Speaking of uh, of Hall of Famers, um, obviously uh, because of COVID this past summer, we didn't have the normal uh, induction ceremonies. And then, of course, this year, nobody met the 75% criteria. And I I saw an interview you did here. It was like a podcast, or not a podcast, but like a a Zoom-type meeting with – one of the Phillies broadcasters probably towards uh, maybe May or June of last year. And one of the questions that he asked you was who was your favorite player growing up? And if memory serves me correctly, that was Ted Simmons. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. So Ted Simmons is going into the hall of fame this year. How, how do you feel about that? That's got to be exciting for you. Great. Long overdue. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a vote in the hall of fame and I don't have a, a say as to who gets in or who doesn't. I think one of the great crimes of our sport is that uh, too many guys who are Hall of Fame worthy are passing away and don't get to enjoy the moment. Uh, You know, I'll speak just specifically of our broadcast team. You know, my dad, Pete and Ernie, I think should be in the Hall of Fame. They're not, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, what's the point of going in the Hall of Fame if you can't be there to enjoy that that moment? Ron Sandel comes to mind. He died a year, to, almost a year to the day after he, uh, or he died a year to the day before he was announced as a, a, being in the Hall of Fame. That's that's criminal. Um, you know, look, uh, yeah, I think it's great that Ted Simmons is in. It's long overdue. 
Uh, I think so much of what is being done uh, uh, with the Hall of Fame is based strictly on numbers and not character issues. It's not based upon contributions to the game. I mean, Jim Cott, Hall of Famer. Tommy John, Hall of Famer. Frank Job, Hall of Famer. Uh, these are people who made unbelievable, uh, unbelievable contributions. I mean, Tommy John won 150-some-odd games after he had uh, that, that revolutionary ligament surgery that's changed the sport and saved the careers of how many guys that are still pitching. Frank Job is the man that pioneered that. If anything should be honored, I mean, it took baseball years to put Marvin Miller in because of the animosity between the players and owners. I mean, it's just dumb, in in my opinion. Dale Murphy, the fact that the, the fact that the voters for the Hall of Fame are using character to exclude certain players, but then aren't rewarding character for a guy like Dale Murphy, who who by the way had phenomenal numbers as well, uh, just speaks to me to the glaring hypocrisy of how the Hall of Fame is 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 done. And this is not an anti-Hall of Fame rant, don't misunderstand me, but uh, we have so many more media outlets than we did in the 1930s when the Hall of Fame started. Writers and broadcasters and radio people should also, I mean, electronic media people should be voting too. Uh, We see all these players. We talk to all these players. It's not just the writers. Uh, That's probably never, ever going to happen. And more importantly, the Hall of Fame is a private business. Shouldn't the Hall of mm-hmm. Fame elect its own Hall of Fame people? <laughs> Why are they using the baseball writers as cover for uh, the players that get elected and don't? Um, you know, I, again, no animosity. I don't have a dog in the fight, but were it me, uh, I, I think that the more people that are that are elected to the Hall of Fame creates a great deal more interest. It doesn't in any way diminish Mike Schmidt's uh, Hall of Fame status if 20 other people get in. And I believe that the players who are great in the area in which they played should be considered for Hall of Fame status because you can't compare what Dale Murphy did to Babe Ruth. Uh, You can't compare what Freddie Freeman's doing to uh, what Lou Brock did. It's different eras. The game is so different now uh, than when Babe Ruth played. Uh, And the fact that guys like Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Walter Johnson weren't unanimous inductees into the Hall of Fame, again, speaks to the just absolute craziness of of uh, the way players are selected. So that's uh, me on my soapbox. Uh, the Hall of Fame is a great institution. <laughs> no. and one of the people I'll probably never get in unless I buy a ticket, and that's okay. But I think for the fans, for the fans, if it's going to be their Hall of Fame, then put their favorite, put their great players in. And don't don't use the Hall of Fame as an exclusionary thing. Let's make it inclusionary. And, and you know, the great players in the area in which they played – Put them in, because the more people you put in, the more people you turn on and educate about educate them about the game, in my humble opinion. You know what, Chip? I, man, I'm even more of a fan of you now, because me and Aaron, Aaron and I have had this conversation before about Hall of Fame, and I respect what they do, but I know one thing is that there's a lot of guys that I believe should be in the Hall of Fame, and it's just, it's a travesty because it's just too much picking and choosing Guys who get a chance to vote won't vote on the first ballot because it's quote unquote a code. It's it's too many rules, and I just think you're right. It, it's the Hall of Fame is for the fans. I've been to Cooperstown; it's beautiful. Just put the guys in. I even think Pete Rose should be in, and I I, I said that several times on our show that that Pete Rose should be in. And I said, you know, knowing baseball, they'll probably put him in after he's deceased, where he can't enjoy it. And it's well, look, you know, baseball had the steroid era, and I'll take Pete Rose out of it because he did break the one rule that was and has been in place since 1919, and that's Rule 21. You can't bet on the game. Uh, but putting Pete Rose aside, um, I, I think by excluding guys like Barry Bonds and Rafael Palmero and uh, Roger Clemens, 
I think um, intimates that our fan base isn't smart enough to figure things out for themselves. There is no crime. Uh, there would be no shame, no crime, if you put on someone's plaque, played in the era known as the steroid era. Let people make their own decisions. Let people make their own discoveries. Let people do their own investigation and have the argument themselves about whether that player should be in the Hall of Fame or not. Because, as we know, we have suspicions, we have facts, we know who did stuff, we think we know who did stuff, but we also know that we missed a lot of guys that did and never got caught. And that's inherently unfair. And so... Um, you know, I, I, I've come, you know, I've come kind of full circle on it. At the end of the day, if it is the hall for the fans, let the fans let the fans decide, or let the fans uh, do their own investigation, or at least educate the fans by by just stating the truth. They played in the '80s and '90s, and whether that's an asterisk or you put them in a separate wing, whatever. But a Hall of Fame that doesn't have Rafael Palmero, three thousand hits and five hundred overs, Roger Clemens and all of his strikeouts. Uh, makes not doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, and um, you know I, I, whether that's going to change or not, I don't know. But I would imagine with some of the younger writers coming online and getting their opportunity to vote and looking at the game in a more analytical way, that uh, you'll probably see more guys uh, you know, like those ones that I talked about getting a chance to to get voted in, and probably a good number of them will get in. Yeah, absolutely, especially especially the people you mentioned that who haven't gotten in yet or did get in when it's really too late. It's just, I agree. I, I couldn't agree more that baseball needs to work on the hall of fame and how they vote people in. I, you know, I, they didn't have anybody come in. I would even like to get Kurt Schilling to get his take on being close, but there's a lot of players that, that should be in the hall of fame. And I just think it's, it's not good for the game, major league baseball. That, yeah. That's well, my... again, I know but baseball lucked out because, you know, you've got Jeter, you've got uh, Ted Simmons and all that. You, you've got another class and Larry Walker. You've got a class that's going in. They lucked out. But what sense does it make to not to have a year where no one goes in? I mean, that, that's just nonsensical to me. Um, and, and to have, I think, 14, 14 voters fill in a ballot with, or turn in a ballot with no names picked. Come on. But, I mean, yeah. it's not for me to say what the rules should be or what anybody should do. But that, 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 to me, that was embarrassing. And um, you know, in the midst of a pandemic where people are looking for something, continuing to look daily for things that are positive and uplifting and inspirational, only baseball could find a year during a pandemic to not elect anybody to the Hall of Fame. You know, in, in, in 2021. So. Uh, luckily, we have those gentlemen that I named earlier, and it'll be a wonderful celebration, although I understand it's going to be done digitally, and there won't be people uh, in person, which will be a shame, but at least uh, those guys will finally get their due. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You, you mentioned uh, a few names there. Um, you know, Dale Murphy, and in my opinion, you know, you look at his era that he played in, he was one of the top five players at his position um, for a long time, and I, I Certainly agree he should be in the Hall of Fame. How about another name that came to Atlanta for a few years? Fred McGriff. I mean, he's seven homers shy of 500. Um, one of the most consistent players in the late 80s, early to mid-90s. Fantastic first baseman defensively as well. Kind of a quiet individual for the most part. But, I mean, Hall of Fame is written all over him, in my opinion. What do you think about that? I, yeah, I mean, look, the numbers are – I mean, to quote the great Lou Pinello, who's from Tampa, numbers are numbers. The numbers speak for themselves. Um, Andrew Jones, why is he not in the Hall of Fame? I mean, and, and I'm coming at this from a, from a Braves, you know, again, from a Braves bias, 
But again, there's so much more to the player than the numbers, and that's where my disconnect usually ends with some of the people that are voting. Oh, he's a six-war player, and all this. No, why? Was he a great player in the era that he played in? Did he play on winning teams? Was he good in the community? Did he make the players around him better? And I think the answer to Dale Murphy is yes. The answer to Fred McGriff is yes. The answer to Andrew Jones is obviously yes, although Andrew at the end of his career kind of, you know, uh, had a precipitous decline in in statistics. Um, But so much of it is based strictly on numbers instead of looking at the big picture. And that's where I I have trouble with understanding uh, what are perceived to be somewhat inconsistencies in how guys vote. But, again, I don't have a vote. I don't have a dog in the hunt. uh, But as a fan of the game, uh, I, as I've said, would like to see more guys in the Hall of Fame rather than less because I don't less think it him. diminishes greatness in any way to have a Hall of Fame full of great players. I, I would uh, probably add Tim Hudson to that name, uh, a list of names there too. Uh, he just, you know, 217 wins, uh, I think, for his career. I mean, he was, again, dominant throughout his whole career. Yeah, and I think, like I think as time goes on, the way pitch, and I think the way that, and I think as time goes on, the way starting pitching is being used now, uh, 217, 225 wins might be the new 300 in 20 <laughs> or 30 years. Uh, I mean, and I'm, and I'm not saying that with any disrespect. It's just reality. Um, you know, the, the guys winning 300 games, you know, we may get one of those every 15 or 20 years. That, that, and that's just that's just how it is, uh, and so when you factor that in, like you said, with Tim Hudson, guy like him, uh, Hall of Fame dude, loved having him with the Braves, gamer, uh, one of the great pranksters of all time too, uh, <laughs> really a good person, and I'd love to see him and his family enjoy a moment like that as well. Yeah, and, and I would you like mentioned. To... Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Alan. Sorry. No, I was gonna say I would like to see Barry Bonds get in too. I know that I might be a minority in saying that, but. The stat that stands out to me that Barry has is 500 home runs, 500 steals. I think that stat alone would get anybody, if he wasn't Barry Bonds, first ballot Hall of Fame. And he does such great things in the community. You know, big, big shout out to Barry Bonds for, for giving out food during the pandemic. He does that now. I, I follow him on Instagram. And this guy does great things in the community. I, I would just want to say that I hope that Barry Bonds gets it. I know it's Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds you mentioned. This is their last year coming up next year, and that's it. So I, I hope they they vote him in. I know it's going to be a stretch. What are your thoughts on those two guys, particularly getting it on the last bid? Well, there's always the Veterans Committee, you know, down the road. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a difficult. I think it's going to be difficult for Bonds. Uh, you know, I, I think some of the the issues using Kurt Schilling is a very uh, recent example. I mean, there there are inherent biases that we all have, uh, and if you know, and, and that's my problem with sometimes the writers voting for for somebody or not voting for somebody. If a guy, if a player's a dick to a writer, do you think the writer's going to remember that when it comes time to vote for their Hall of Fame candidacy? <laughs> of course they are. Right. I mean, and that's just human nature. Right. And so, um, you know, Barry Bonds was on a Hall of Fame trajectory before he was accused of using steroids. Um, So, you know, you you ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers. Um, But as I said before, it doesn't make sense to me to have a Hall of Fame where you have 3,000 hits and 500 home runs, Rafael Palmeiro not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Roger Clemens and all of his World Series work and postseason work and all the strikeouts, not in the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose, different story. Barry Bonds, you know, has hit hit, hit more home runs than Hank Aaron. Um, as I said before, I don't think you're rewarding um, bad behavior. I think uh, you are honoring and remembering that 
whether they took something or not, they still had to hit the ball, catch the ball, throw the ball, and um, let people make their own decisions. Let people decide whether the bear, you know, let people go and see and say, is he Hall of Fame player, yes or no? I'm not talking about Hall of Fame person. I'm talking about Hall of Fame player. And, you know, it's either you know, we're either the Hall of Fame's already got guys that are in there that aren't exactly uh, 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 related to Mother Teresa. So <laughs> let's not pretend. Let's, I mean, let's not pretend the Hall of Fame is something that it's not. It's placed on of great players. It's a tough game played by tough men. And some of these guys made tough decisions and some of them were bad decisions. But again, let fans decide and, be, and educate themselves as to whether they think it's right or wrong. Do you think of uh, Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't studied Kurt Schilling quite as much. Um, you know, I, I remember Kurt in his early days was, was okay. He was, you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't, his stats didn't pop out. I mean, he had great success with Randy Johnson in Arizona, obviously, and had a great career. Um, I think Kurt Schilling's case is, I think, um, magnified, um, by, you know, some of the stuff that he has said, which doesn't fly into the, which doesn't, you know, fly in the mainstream. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's unfortunate. You know, wh- whatever his beliefs are should have nothing to do with his valuation and performance as a player. And I think in a lot of cases, the exact opposite is true. And I don't think that's right. Um, excuse me. And so I, and so I think, uh, you know, uh, what, what is the basis for evaluating the Hall of Fame uh, ball player? His political stance, his financial status, his numbers on the field, his work in the community. I mean, what? Right? Because we can all pick, as I said, we can all pick whatever it is we want to either include or exclude a certain player for any particular reason we want. And it seems to me that, you know, his performance on the field and his character um, and, you know, integrity and uh, contributions to the game should be first and foremost. And as I said before, human beings have human biases. God bless them. Vote how you want. I don't have a dog in the hunt. Um, but for me, uh, to answer your question, you know, Kurt Schilling, um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get as hot under the collar about that one as much as I do Dale Murphy or Andrew Jones or, as you said, Fred McGriff. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate you letting me know that. Definitely. Uh, those. I mean, Fred McGriff. He's a, he's from Tampa, man. This guy. He, they need to vote him in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah well, I think he'll, you know, the, he'll again, eventually get there. It's yeah, he'll get there eventually. I think so. And as I said, as as uh, the younger the younger generation evaluates the game and looks at the game in a new way, um, I think there'll be more and more players who are looked at differently, and I think more favorably uh, by the Hall of Fame. Because I, 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 as I've said before, it's not about making the Hall of Fame the Hall of the very good. I think, in my opinion, it's about making the Hall of Fame a place that honors the great players in the era in which they played. And there's no harm in saying that Todd Helton, in the time he played, was as great a player as um, Jimmy Fox was in the era in which he played. They all had different advantages. They all had very different uh, disadvantages. Uh, And to compare them on the basis of just mere numbers alone, I think, is a big, big mistake. I agree. I definitely Sorry about that. Uh, to okay. come full circle before you go, Chip, tonight, uh, I know that um, the dominoes, you know, really started falling with free agency here maybe 10, 12 days ago uh, with all the, you know, big names that have started to to, uh, to sign elsewhere, you know, that were going to the Dodgers and, and uh, Real Mutu staying, of course, with the Phillies. 
Um, looks like Atlanta's going to need a closer uh, right now, looking like uh, there's going to be an opening there. The bullpen taking some hits. I guess Melanson apparently signed with San Diego uh, earlier today. Uh, where do you see Atlanta going with uh, with the closers role? Are they going to stay in-house? Are they going to maybe still you know, find something out there on the market? Or are we going to just kind of go through spring training and maybe somebody wins the job as uh, as the spring moves on? No, I think Will Smith's your closer. They they signed him to a big contract. That's you know that, that's probably your your first guy, uh, but you have several candidates who could close out ball games. AJ Minter can close uh, for you. Chris Martin can close for you. Jacob Webb has a great arm. Plus, the kids that don't make the starting rotation will probably be in that bullpen too. So I think the Blues feel pretty good about uh, you know some of the big pieces there that they'll probably want to. Uh, try to uh, upgrade or add to before the end of spring training, and they, they they've always been good at doing that in the final days. Um, but I and I think I think that's going to be hugely important this year, not just uh, how good your bullpen is, but how how much starting pitching depth you, you have. To go from 60 games to 162 for the starting pitchers is going to be a huge undertaking, and how teams limit those innings, how teams spread out those starts. Uh, you know, the old days of having five starters go, you know, 32, 33 times, you know, uh, each, those days are probably going to be over uh, until mm-hmm. next year. They're going to have to stretch these kids back out again and how they handle the workload in the heat of an Atlanta center when it's August and you're, you know, last year you pitch in uh, 60 games, you pitched in maybe 12 games and, and you're in your 23rd start and you still have another two months to go. Think about that. I mean that's going to be that's going to be a test for every major league team, and I think the Braves are uniquely uh, positioned to take advantage of that with the depth that they showed in their rotation last year. Adding Smiley, adding Charlie Morton, uh, I think the Braves feel pretty good about their staff uh, as things get kicked off next week. Yeah, and getting Mike Soroka back probably I think um, last time I heard probably May. Uh, obviously he's coming back from a pretty serious injury. How good is Mike Soroka? I mean this kid looks like he is wise beyond his years, just very smart pitcher on the mound, cuts the ball just as good as anybody, almost reminds me a little bit of Maddox, the way he kind of takes the game out. How, how good is he? Uh, he's he's a, he's a great kid, huge guitar player, uh, self-taught guitar player, can really shred, really, really talented, uh, super nice guy, Canadian, uh, one of my favorite human beings, not, not to mention pitchers. Oh, he's terrific. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, of you know, the, the arm's fine. Uh, from what I've read, the arm is fine. It's just a matter of can he get off the mound, making sure that Achilles is, is 100%. Because, again, he, you know, guys are going to butt on him. How is he going to react to that? Uh, he's going to have to swing the bat and run the bases. How is he going to react to that? Nobody knows. And that's, again, why uh, you know, the, the universal DH would have been so smart for baseball to implement this year. Um, because, you know, in our league, you've got a whole host of pitchers who haven't swung the bat in two years, and we're going to send them out there to, to do that. Now, I'm not saying they made a tissue paper. I'm not saying these guys should be wrapped in bubble wrapping. You know, they're, they're athletes. They need to figure it out. But in terms of just common sense and practical um, application of being smart, I don't know that this is the smartest decision that the union and owners have come about not having it for this year. Now, it could still change. You know, we still have weeks to go before regular season, but um, you know, Mike Soroka is going to be a big, big part of what the Braves do this year. And as you said, uh, getting him back is like trading for a number one starter without giving anything up. And with him and Free at the top of the rotation, Morton and Smiley, and then a battle of four guys for one spot in the fifth spot rotation, 
Uh, again, as I said, the Braves, I think, feel very enviable about where they are with regards to quality arms they can throw at you every night. I feel better going into this year even than last year because I, I liked the, the Hamels signing. And I got to tell you, you know, and I, I know he didn't plan this, obviously, and it was a, a prorated salary, but I think he signed for he was one year, $18 million, and he only threw like three innings for the year. So um, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll take a, a portion of that. I'll go there and throw three innings for you, give me a couple million dollars. I know, he, unfortunately, just it was the way that the, the arm went. And, of course, the starting and then the stopping and then the starting up again, unfortunately didn't, didn't work to his favor. That was one of the gambles that unfortunately didn't, uh, didn't play well, but Alex Antopoulos has done a great job. I mean, he has, um, you know, he, he's not rolled the dice too much. And even these situations where it is a one year deal, if the guy doesn't play out, you know, you only, you only invested the one year. In him. Well, so I guess that's, well, yeah, exactly right. You know, they're, they're, they're banking on Smiley Morton providing depth. You figure Freed, Soroka, Anderson, um, Kyle Wright, Bryce Wilson, that's five. That's before you even get to Smiley and Morton. Um, you know, then you have Sean Newcomb, who's a possible guy that you could throw in there uh, as a spot starter bullpen guy. So that's eight quality. That's eight guys that you have that can start games for you. Uh, name me another major league team that can say that going into spring training. There aren't too many. Uh, and, and the reason that the Braves are in this position is Alex Antopoulos showed remarkable restraint. You know, when you become a GM, uh, it said you want to come in and make a big splash. You want to go make a big trade to, to put your stamp on your team. Alex didn't do that. Uh, he's really kept his powder dry. He's kept his pitching prospects, and he has, you know, slowly, methodically, and, uh, and smartly, I think, evaluated what, what he has and understood that these guys need time to develop. Mike Sorok is 22, 23 years old. Max Reed's 22, 23 years old. They're, they're, they're still babies. We don't know what they're going to be like in five or six years because what they are right now is pretty damn good. So um, think about how differently we'd think about the Braves organization if they had traded one of those guys for a one-year rental, and then you're left holding the bag, and that guy goes on and wins 20 games for somebody else. You wouldn't be too happy about it. So, um, you know, big tip of the cap to Alex for um, – having the courage to be patient and uh, getting to know his system and waiting for the right moment to strike to go make the deal that puts you over the top. And I think the Braves have the opportunity to do that come July at the trading deadline, both financially with, with player capital. And ultimately that will depend on how they uh, do in the standings. If they're right near the top of the division, uh, they've shown they're not afraid to make a deal and that payroll. And I'm fairly confident that they'll do that again in 2021. Bold predictions for 2021. Um, let's just say the NLCS and the ALCS. Who, who do you see in the final four in both the National and the American League? Well, of course, because I'm a big homer, I'm going to say the Braves will be in there. Uh, Braves and Dodgers. Uh, I think the Dodgers are the class of the league. Uh, although the Cardinals are going to really pitch. Don't sleep on St. Louis. They're going to be very good. Uh, they're going to have unbelievably good defense. They have a great pitching staff. They're not going to score a ton of runs, but they're going to pitch it and catch it, which is, uh, you know, 90% of the battle in our game. So keep an eye on the Cardinals as sort of the, you know, third team, in my opinion, lurking uh, for a chance to get to the World Series uh, on our side. Uh, boy, in the American League, I haven't really studied the American League all that much. Uh, you know, the Yankees are the Yankees. Um, quite obviously, all the money they spend. Um, you know, the Astros will be will be better. Uh, you know, Tampa Bay is going to be an interesting team. You know, they turn things over every single year. 
Um, you know, the Royals, I love their deal that they made with Ben and Tendi. Uh, I think that's going to be a great, a, a great acquisition for them. Aiden Moore is trying to go for it. What's a, a weak American League Central and the White Sox made a lot of noise and have a lot of terrific young players. So, you know, I've said it, I've said it a lot and I'll keep saying it, you know, whether we like it or not, we're, we're witnessing a golden era of our game. And there's so many great players and these athletes are bigger and better and stronger than at any other time in the history of our game. Uh, they don't play the game the way that old guys like me grew up watching. It doesn't make it worse. It doesn't make it better. It just makes it different. And the things that these guys can do at the ages that they're doing it and doing it so well, I think bodes very, very well for the long-term future of our sport. And so uh, I've said it uh, many times as well. It's a privilege to, to get to see it. It's a privilege to get to talk about it. And I hope people uh, we'll try to find all the good in our game instead of focusing on what's wrong with it because there's a hell of a lot more right about it than there isn't. <laughs> yeah. I agree 100%. <laughs> well said. Well, Chip, yeah. it's been a pleasure speaking with you here tonight. Uh, this has been a thrill of a lifetime for our show and to be able to speak to you and get some insight and just, you know, have this uh, this great opportunity. Um Obviously, as a Braves fan, I wish them the best of luck this season. I'm hoping to to hear you call the final out of the World Series in the next couple of years. Hopefully, this is the year. Um, you know, spring is always when we start over fresh and in a clean slate. So, hopefully, this is the beginning of a um, a World Championship season, and uh, we can bring home the Commissioner's Trophy this year. From your lips to God's ears, guys. It's a pleasure <laughs> being on with you. I appreciate it. Good luck to you guys. We'll talk soon. Okay. That yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. And definitely we hope we have no workshop okay, this your, your full thing. Amen. I love it. Just just as we keep saying in the business, just pay me. See you guys soon. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> have a good night. Right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you are uh, just joining us, you missed out on a great uh, interview here tonight with, uh, with Chip Carey, a uh, longtime great baseball voice. Um, been calling games for the Braves for the last oh, 15 or 16 years. And, of course, I uh, was with the Cubs before that. Alan, uh, I'm smiling from year to year. I don't know how, how you feel right now, but I want to get to some other things here. Obviously, a big week in the Central Florida area with the Buccaneers pulling yep. off that Super Bowl victory. Uh, I know you're as thrilled as you could be. Um, congratulations to the Bucks. I mean, again, Tom Brady, um, you never doubt the guy. I, I wouldn't be shocked if he played a few more years. What do you think? I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I'm predicting that, you know, he is on the contract for next year. I predict he's going to probably stretch it to two or three years at the minimum. I just think he did such a wonderful job. The Bucks did a great job. I was very confident. I think I've, I mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I was very confident that the Bucks were going to win the Super Bowl. I thought – the team that they really had to worry about during the stretch was against your Packers. And I felt as if they got past the Packers playing, playing and the Packer stadium. I, I just thought that if they were going to be a very, very tough team to beat, even though they were playing the chiefs, I just think, you know, they, they just did a phenomenal job. Tom Brady really didn't get hit. He was able to stay back there, find his guy, made great throws. And, I was just so happy for the Bucks. I also was happy for my, my late friend, Alfonso Howard, who is now no longer with us. You know, big uh, shout-out to him in heaven. 
that the Bucks were able to pull us off. And I had a quiet confidence that they were going to get this done. I didn't think it was going to be, I wouldn't say it was a blowout. A lot of people call it a blowout. I would say it was a convincing win, not a, maybe a blowout, but I didn't think they were going to be that, you know, that big of a disparity in the, in the points for the chiefs to only score nine points in the game. Defense did outstanding. Tom Brady did great. And Hey, I wanted to get your thoughts on <laughs> Tom Brady and having that much fun at the parade. Hey, I mean, think about it this way. How many quarterbacks have won one Super Bowl, let alone seven? I mean, he, before too long, he's going to have to grow another hand to be able to put all those rings on. I mean, if he plays any, any more than you know, three more points. So, um, you know what? You win a, you win a championship, you, you, you celebrate. You have fun. I mean, yes. look at all the guys that were great players that never got it. I mean, Dan Marino one of the top talents to ever play the position of quarterback. He played in one Super Bowl at the beginning of his career and never played another one again. So if you win a Super Bowl, and that's the infectiousness of Tom Brady as far as guys want to play around this guy. I read a story earlier today that uh, who is the running back that wants to come play in Tampa next year to be Tom Brady's teammate and possibly win another Super Bowl. I'll have to look the article up again, but I mean – it's infectious. And look, I mean, Gronk came out of retirement to come to Tampa and, and play there. So, um, you know, more power to him. And, you know, there's this argument that I had heard for 15 years, probably that Tom Brady was a system quarterback that he couldn't win without being around Bill Belichick. Um, if he tried to go anywhere else and win, he would just, he would never be successful. He'd fall flat on his face. I'm sorry, Tom Brady. I mean, he had MVP caliber numbers this year at 43 years old. Uh, that, that, that's that's mega impressive. I, I just can't really – there's no way to, to really put that in words. I mean, and you look at some of the other greats of all time. You, you look at um, Montana, who as a kid was, in my opinion, the best quarterback at that time that had ever played. He's almost won twice as many Super Bowls as Joe Montana at this point. So um, wouldn't shock me to see him back there again next year. I think the one – blessing that he has had for the majority of his career and Tampa did such a good job of making sure this happened here in 2020 going into this year they've been able to keep a pretty good pocket around him um you know he had that one year I think 2008 where he in the first game of the season had a season-ending knee injury who knows they might have won another Super Bowl that year but I mean for the most part as long as you Tom Brady can play till he's 50 if you can keep him in the pocket. If you can keep him keep him protected, he, I, I don't see any reason why he can't play another several years at this point. No, I agree. And and you know what? I think his leadership skills were showing, as you had mentioned earlier, that he, there was questioning whether he was going to win without Bill Belichick. His leadership skills, and he makes everybody around him better. Just by his presence, the culture change in the – the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, also with the experience of knowing how to win, he brought that dynamic. He did a fantastic job, and I'm so happy for him for a lot of reasons. But what I am particularly happy with with Tom Brady is that he came here to Tampa Bay, and he's having the time of his life. He's having fun. You saw him in the boat. He got a little tipsy, maybe a little bit past tipsy. But you know what? He earned it. He deserved it. I'm glad that he came here to Tampa enjoying himself, having fun. He's like a kid in a candy store at his age 
been in the league so many times and has nothing to prove. Even if he, let's say, lost the Super Bowl, he still would be in the GOAT category and still would be a GOAT. You know what? I tip my hat to, to Tom Brady, what he's done. Seven rings, like you said, those great players. It's, it, it's not easy even getting to the Super Bowl, let alone winning one and then winning multiple Super Bowls. And, and you got to celebrate it. You know, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts because me and somebody on Facebook went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth about this topic. You have a wife that works in healthcare. I have a wife that works in healthcare. When the Bucks won a Super Bowl, should they have had a Super Bowl boat parade? Is my question to you. Ah, man, I tell you what, that's a hard question to answer. There's there's arguments for and against it. Um, responsibly, yes. Irresponsibly, no. Um, and and it, it's hard for me. I mean, whatever answer I give, you're going to have, you know, diehard people on one side and diehard people on the other. So it's kind of a very fine line that you have to walk when you answer a question like this. I, I, I definitely think that there are, for safety reasons, um, should have been, a, you know, a very strict protocol in place. Um, you know, people are tired, obviously, of, of what's going on. We're, we're, we're ready to get yeah. back to normal normal world. And no, nobody on any side disagrees with that. I think we're all ready for, for life to go back to the way it was. Um, no, no one's going to probably disagree with that uh, at this point. But, um, you know, it, it's hard for me to, to, to not – understand why someone would want to be out there. How many times does your team win the Super Bowl? I mean, this is the yeah. first time that Tampa's won a Super Bowl in 18 years. And I'll tell you, Alan, I was, um, I've lived in Central Florida my whole life. And um, obviously, you know me as a Packers fan, but I've also been a Bucks fan over the years too. And in 2003, uh, January, 2003 might have been February. It was the first, uh, first few days of February, late, late January that year. I went to the Super Bowl parade in downtown Tampa when the, mm-hmm. Buccaneers won uh, Super Bowl 37, and I don't know what the comparison is like to the one we just had versus uh, the one back then, but I've been to a lot of big events over the years. I've been to the Daytona 500. I've been to the Home Run Derby and the All-Star Game. I've been to some playoff baseball games. That might have been one of the most interesting events I've ever been to um, back in 2003 uh, because, I mean, at that time, Tampa had been the laughing stock of the NFL for almost its entire existence. So to see them go out and win the Super Bowl, John Gruden, it was his first year there. Um, the offense was finally starting to click the way it, you know, hadn't ever clicked in the past. The defense was at its peak. And of course, everything kind of fell apart after that year, but um, to, to finally get a Super Bowl here. And I, I, I remember very vividly standing on, the side of the road somewhere in downtown Tampa and John Gruden on the top of a convertible vehicle drove right by us and had, uh, had the Lombardi trophy in his hand. And it's just an wow. experience. So it's, it's hard for me to, to, it's hard for me to, to say, Hey, there shouldn't have been something at all. Cause it's just hard to, to say that. Um, but to add the responsibility part in there, that's the part that I think is, is, you know, what needed to be looked at maybe a little bit more. It's hard to plan these things, though. I mean, it's hard to, to sometimes organize something that's not really easy to organize. I think it's probably a better thing they did it out on the, the, the water in the river there. But, um, again, you know, it, 
you look back at, at any other championship team that's won a, a, a championship or a title here since this whole uh, pandemic started, you know, I'm not sure what any other teams did, but um, I think going forward, again, me personally, I try to stay, if I see someone who's not wearing a mask, it's not that I don't want them around me or necessarily don't like them. I just, I want to keep my distance <laughs> to be safe. So it's hard to do that in a big environment, like, like a, a, a parade where people are excited and, and naturally so they should be excited. Their team just won the Super Bowl. Um, but again, it, I think there's arguments for and arguments against, and I don't think either side is necessarily right or necessarily wrong. I think it's kind of a combination of the two. It is a very, very razor thin fine line. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I would agree with you. I can see it from both sides. You know, from the Buck side, the people who, who actually support the parade, I'm looking at it like this. The Bucks did something phenomenal. They were the first team to not only make it to the Super Bowl after 18 years, but to play a Super Bowl on the home field was history by itself. And then mm-hmm. you actually won the Super Bowl. Winning a Super Bowl, as you were talking about earlier, isn't something that's guaranteed in life. The last time the Bucks here was here was, you know, 18 years ago. You can get to Super Bowl and not win. You can win it. It is one of those things that you got to cherish it, whether you are in the middle of winning it multiple years or your first year ever. I just think a Super Bowl is that difficult. You have 32 teams paying millions of dollars to get the same thing you want, and that's a rig. And it's very competitive. It is not easy to get there, to get a Super Bowl win. I mean, that shows you how great Tom Brady is. He has seven now, but he's also been there 10 times. So he lost three, but I'm, I'm not trying to harp on the negative, but the thing is winning a Super Bowl is not easy. I understand why somebody would want to have a party and a parade. I actually agree with it on that side. Like emotionally, I understand why you want to have a parade to celebrate it. Now the safety issue Yes, you, there is mask mandate here in Tampa. I want people to understand that, that there was a mask mandate outdoors for everybody to wear a mask. However, you're on a parade. People are screaming. They got their you know, alcoholic beverages, adult beverages, whatever you want to call it. They have, you know, they're yelling and screaming. So their risk is high. Even though it's outdoor, it, I can definitely understand the other side where you're, saying, where you're taking a high risk. You know, myself, I was ready and geared to go. And then the day of it, I was like, something was telling me, I just think there's going to be a lot more people here than I probably estimate. And I did see the crowd and I was like, you know what? Maybe it's not the safest thing to do. I'll I'll watch it from home. I definitely want to support them, but I, I just can't catch COVID. I just don't, you know what I mean? I don't want to put myself in that type of position. So I see both sides of the fence. I understand why they want to have a party and they should. And at the other end, I can understand where it is. The, the responsibility factor is not there also. So I see both sides. But I am glad they did the, the parade. I, I definitely am glad that they did have a parade. It is, it is something that was outdoors. It was something that was a mile and a half long. So you could pick out a spot that you felt was less crowded. And maybe if you went there with your mask, did the right thing. But I, I definitely glad that the Bucks won. And I'm glad that uh, they're they got the Lombardi Trophy. That's awesome. Yep, second Lombardi Trophy. Uh, they're two and zero now in in Super Bowl play. And you know, here's the the reality: Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. They're they're, they're going to be back there again. There's no doubt in my mind. That team is so talented, and Mahomes is. I mean, 
even though the game was really out of reach at the end, you got to hit that guy, knock him down, because until he is down or until he is set out of bounds, he is a threat to complete a pass or at least get a pass off. And, you know, just a, a great quarterback. And, again, somebody had to lose the game, and, and you know, he handled it very gracefully. So I, I definitely um, definitely think he is the, the next great quarterback, obviously, in the league. Obviously, he's won a Super Bowl already. So um, Kansas City Chiefs, obviously, is who we were talking about there before. And earlier this week, uh, Marty Schottenheimer, who coached with the Chiefs uh, during the 1990s, had a great run there. Also spent a number of years in Cleveland with the Browns. Towards the end of his career, he had one year with Washington. And at the end, uh, a couple of really good years with the then San Diego Chargers. He passed away at 77. One of the greatest coaches in NFL history, to be quite honest with you. And he never got a chance to coach in the big game. But um, always very very good disciplinarian, expected and demanded, um, you know, greatness out of his players, um, demanded the best out of them. Um, just a really good guy. He had a really good football mind, and and even outside of uh, football, he was just a really great individual. So um, sad to hear of his passing. It was kind of coming, unfortunately. He had had uh, Alzheimer's for, I think, since 2013, and um, I think it was uh, Super Bowl Sunday uh, he was put into hospice and passed away apparently on Monday um, with his family surrounding him. So our condolences here from the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk radio show to the Schottenheimer family. I know his, uh, his uh, son is now, I believe, the offensive coordinator with, uh, with the Jacksonville Jaguars under the Urban Meyer uh, regime there. So, um, And then here's another big one. This happened today. This broke earlier this afternoon, maybe around about 1 or 2 o'clock. I'm excited on this one for a couple of reasons, but J.J. Watt has officially been released by the Houston Texans after approximately 10 or so seasons there. Um, a lot of people out there are excited. Uh, maybe he'll come play <laughs> defense for your team. What, what do you think? You think uh, what, what do you see J.J. Uh, Watt ending up? Yeah, J.J. Watt, you know, definitely it seemed like I did see his uh, – he didn't have a press conference. He actually went live and – and spoke directly to his fan base via, you know, like, you know, do a FaceTime. And I have a lot of respect for J.J. Watt, what he's done for the Texans. Great, great talent. And he said it was mutual, that it was they, – they, they mostly both agreed it was time to move on and part ways. But I could see – you know what? I could see him going to the Bucks. It seemed like a lot of players – I know that – a lot of players see what happened with Tampa Bay that you can add a couple of pieces, have all this fun in the sun and win a ring. And it's a lot more laid back. That's, that's why I'm so glad the weather was nice during this week for, for the Super Bowl week. But it it's, I could see him come from Texas, maybe giving it a try to, to go to the bucks. I, I don't see why he wouldn't at least entertain a thought from the bucks. They're, they're, giving him what he wants. He wants to play for contender. He can uh, definitely help our team. And I know at this point he wants to win, so he's willing to negotiate his contract. Plus, he'd been from Texas. He has to like the warm weather. He's been there for 10 years. So I know you probably have other thoughts where he might go, but I would say I wouldn't doubt if he was a Buccaneer. I wouldn't. What are your thoughts on, on where he goes? 
JJ Watt. Uh, Tampa, Tampa certainly. I mean, he, he wants to win a ring, so I, I certainly think Tampa would be a, a, a logical uh, spot. I mean, uh, and this is not from a biased perspective at all. He is from Wisconsin. Uh, grew up a, a fan of Reggie White and the Packers, so there's that logical uh, spot as well. Uh, but then there's also Pittsburgh and there's Cleveland, and I, I heard even Baltimore is uh, is another team that could could uh, come you know calling here once free agency begins in a few weeks. So I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to happen pretty quickly with whatever it is. And, you know, those are probably the top teams right there. I don't really know of any, you know, wild cards that would jump in there. Uh, but he's still got a, a he's still got a couple of good years left in him. I know he's had some injury issues throughout his career that have kind of hampered him a little bit. But this is a guy, I mean, whoever he signs with is going to be getting the heck of a player. Absolutely. And you're right about that. And interesting, you said that when he did do the FaceTime, he had a, a Wisconsin sweatshirt on. So there might be something to that. He might be he might be thinking about Green Bay playing over there. But I just think I, I don't know how he feels with the cold weather. It is, you know, I don't know anybody who likes to play in cold weather. I mean, besides Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> so <laughs> I just I just think of He's going to be a hot commodity. J.J. Watt is going to be definitely a hot commodity. And I definitely see Deshaun Watson walking up, too. That, that's, that's what I see. I think they're cleaning house there. What are your thoughts on, on Deshaun Watson at this point? Well, and, and here's my thought on Deshaun Watson. Whoever, again, whoever gets him, he's got a long career left ahead of him, a good 10, 12 years. Very athletic quarterback. Um, you know, kind of reminds me a little bit of Randall Cunningham, just with his his athleticism, um, accuracy throwing, and just his moves to be able to get away from the defenders. I've heard a bunch of teams are interested in him. I've heard San Francisco. I heard a crazy four-team trade that would have him ending up in Green Bay, um, which, you know, I'm not going to necessarily be against that because I think that the Rodgers era is coming to an end at some point soon. Um I think, and I, I predicted this a few weeks ago when the when the when the trade between the Rams and the Lions occurred. That's the first domino that falls as far as the quarterbacks moving around. But I wouldn't be shocked if, of the 32 teams in the NFL, if about half of them had a new starting quarterback going into into 2021. It's going to be interesting because you've got new coaches now. Jacksonville's going to need a quarterback. Uh, we've heard Sam Darnold's name come up a couple times. Um, you know, we don't know for sure what's going to happen with Dak Prescott yet. Uh, we talked about this off air beforehand that Russell Wilson might be available. It, it really is going to, it's almost going to be like, I don't know if you played Madden back in the day. Um, you know, in the early two thousands, the way they had their free agency set up in that, in that game system on, you know, PlayStation or wherever you played it on, you would see player movement like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. So it's almost like a video game that we're going to see, I think happen here. And I don't think it's just going to be quarterbacks. I think you're going to see some some other big position players, wide receivers, running backs. I think you're going to see some other players move too. So we're about, uh, I think, three, three and a half, four weeks, somewhere in there between now and when free agency really gets kicked off. And I think you're going to see some big, big-time player movement uh, taking place. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're going to see a lot of people moving, shuffling, and – you know, even with Aaron getting that 
MVP. Congratulations on him getting that third MVP. I just don't know. It's, I, I don't know. His situation didn't sound too confident that they wanted him and they would keep him. Or like you said, the, the run has to end at some point. But it seemed like it was kind of shaky whether he's going to be the, the quarterback next year. I don't see how you don't bring him back being had such a great year, but it, you know, this run has to end at some point, but I hope they learn from what happened with Tom Brady. You would hate to see a guy leave and then go to another team and get a ring for a different team, you know? So. Well, that, Matt, Matt LaFleur, Matt, Matt LaFleur has already said, and, and the general managers also said too, we're bringing back Aaron Rodgers next year. So I, I don't have any doubts unless there's some, trade in the works that we don't know about yet, but he'll be back with Green Bay. And the other thing, too, is this. You know, the way Aaron Rodgers reacted after losing in the NFC title game, sometimes the guy reacts that way after they lose, and they, they, they haven't had a chance to really fully digest what just happened to them. So a lot of times, those are emotional reactions, and, you know, it takes a few months to really kind of grasp everything, and, hey, now it's all starting over again. The draft's about to happen. We got, you know, mini camp and all this kind of stuff coming up. So um, I think he's fully committed to the Packers. I know that Jordan Love is the quarterback in waiting, kind of like Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback in waiting when Brett Favre was at the end of his career. So um, it would be very shocking to see a move where Rodgers was not starting in Green Bay here this next season. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I hope he's back. I really do. I, and it sounds like they're going to work things out and get him back. I definitely think you you he still has a lot in the tank. And he should be back. But, you know, the NFL, it's been a lot of movement now. It's, it seemed like guys don't want to play for, for who they're with. It's, it's like, as you mentioned, Russell Wilson, that there's, there's talks there where he's not happy and they're not happy on both sides. So, to see Russell in a different uniform is something that I just didn't even fathom, but it seemed like that could be a possibility too. It's just, what do you make of that, of this, uh, of the NFL now at this point where it's becoming more of a player go where I want to go type of league? Well, I mean, look, that, that's what it should be about. I mean, you know, a, a guy should be able to go to whatever team he wants as long as he has, you know, reached free agency and gone through the right steps. Um, you know, and, you know, I go back to the nineties on a lot of these things. You look at some of the big moves in the nineties that were the sexy move, if you will. I mean, remember when Deion Sanders left Atlanta and went to San Francisco, won a Super Bowl there. And then, Hey, I'm going to go to Dallas. Dallas is San Francisco's biggest rival at this point. I'm going to go to Dallas. I'm going to win a Super Bowl there. And what does he do the next year? He goes to Dallas and wins the Super Bowl. So, you know, free agency in the NFL is not the same as it is in other sports. It's not the same as it is in baseball. I mean, look, we, we just kind of talked about this earlier with Chip Carey. Baseball free agency technically begins in like mid-November. Here we are three months later and guys are just now signing. So with the NFL, you're going to see the big names. They're going to sign within a couple of days, with probably the day one, with wherever they're going to go. Um, but to answer your question there, you know, you put in your time with whatever team you started off with or whoever you signed with, you should be able to move on to where you want to go. And I'm going to throw this out there. I've said this a few times in the past. You know, Dak Prescott 
apparently the Cowboys had their opportunity to to lock him up for, you know, five years or more, whatever it was, and they let that opportunity go by the wayside. And I think if he gets away, you made a very good point there. You let this guy get away and he wins the Super Bowl somewhere else, you're going to be kicking yourself for the rest of your life. I mean, that's just the way it works. So, Yeah. And that, that would be the, definitely the case. And do you think, uh, how do you think Bill Belichick is taking in the fact that Tom Brady just did just that, get a ring with another team the very next year? How do you think he, he's sitting with, with Bill on that? Well, I mean, Bill's a professional. I, I don't know Bill. I've never talked to Bill before. I don't know him personally in any way, shape, or form, but he's a professional. And, you know, you keep in mind that he, he coached with the, the Browns in the, in the 90s and was not a very successful coach. I mean, they had a, a decent year in there somewhere. Um, I, I think, to me, and I don't know how much longer he's going to coach. He's almost 70 years old at this point. I do not think that he, he's a smart coach, certainly. I, I do believe they will find a way to bring in someone who gives them an opportunity. I don't think that the type of offense that they were trying to run in New England this past year was really – benefited by Cam Newton playing there. And that's not a knock against Cam Newton necessarily as far as his athleticism. He's a heck of an athlete, no question about it. Um, But it was like the same – it was like magnets being put together on the wrong side, you know, just pushing each other apart. And Cam Newton would have been a better fit, I think, in Washington. Obviously, he played under under, um, Ron Rivera before. So the schemes would have been kind of the same. Remember how late it was in camp that Newton ended up signing with uh, with New England as it was anyways. So it was kind of almost like a desperate attempt. I, I really firmly believe – I'm going to make a bold prediction here. I, I firmly believe that not only will New England sometime in the first couple rounds of this coming draft draft their future quarterback, but I think Jimmy Garoppolo is going to somehow end up back in, in New England this year. And I think, I think Bill Belichick will be just fine. They'll be a contender once again there in New England. Yeah, I mean, definitely Bill Belichick is a smart coach. He knows he knows what adjustments he needs to make and to get his team back to at least the playoffs, you know, after missing it. But I, I do think it did prove that Brady's a lot greater quarterback than people give him credit for. I think that was the thing that resonated to me was that, you know, this guy – wanted to play it shows to me also that the patriots and or bill belichick did not appreciate him because tom wanted to play you could clearly see this guy wanted to play and the patriots kind of gave a lukewarm effort to keep him there i think if they made an effort like hey we really want you back we appreciate everything you're doing you're a great ambassador for our league for our team we will do anything to get you back I think Brady signs with them for a discount than what he did for the Bucks. That's what I believe. It was about appreciation and showing them, showing to Tom Brady that we appreciate everything you've done and everything you could possibly do for us in the future. I think that lack of appreciation, like, all right, you know, we don't kind of want you. We can do it without you. And we need to get a new quarterback anyway. Don't let the door hit you on the way out didn't sit well with Tom Brady and that's why he's playing for the Bucks and having the time of his life. And Bill has to to take some of that 
as well as Robert Kraft that you let the biggest asset that you have walk out the door because you didn't appreciate him. So that goes to, to not just to Bill Belichick, the Patriots organization. It should go to all employers and all NFL players, Major League Baseball, NBA, that, hey, if a guy wants to play and if he's been doing something great for you, you should learn one word, and that's appreciation, and you need to show it and also be about appreciation because it could come back to cost you, obviously, a ring or potential ring in the future. What are your thoughts on appreciation? Well, and I think that on both sides, there was a little bit of, you know, give and take as far as, you know, Brady saying, hey, I, I think I can go do this somewhere else just as good as I'm doing it here. And it was almost like, you know, this is back in March of last year, it was almost like Belichick was daring him to do it. Um, you could kind of, you could kind of, you know, when the Patriots lost in the playoffs last uh, last January, I believe it was, was it to Houston? No, not Houston, but to, uh, to was it Tennessee? Yeah. You could kind of, that, yep, that's I remember back to. Yep, yeah, it was Tennessee. I, I remember at thinking in that game, and the, the, the storyline was all around that game. Is this Brady's last – A, was his last game as a player in general, but is this his final game as a Patriot? And you almost could smell that before the game even was played, that this is it. There's not enough to keep him here. He wants to try something different. He wants to also prove the doubters wrong, and I defended Tom Brady for 15 years. There, there's uh, someone I used to have this debate with literally every time we would talk. Tom Brady can't win anywhere else. He's a system quarterback without support system quarterback. He can't win anywhere else. Into another system and whatever. Tom Brady is the system. I mean, seven Super Bowls ends that argument. I don't care who you are. I don't, I don't care. I don't care if you won all seven of them with New England. He he is the system. He doesn't have to prove himself anywhere else. But yeah, he did. He won it in Tampa. End of argument. You know, here's this. Here's the stat that I think is so crazy. We just played the 55th Super Bowl. In NFL history, 55 Super Bowls, only four times or only four quarterbacks in that 55-year span have started a, a Super Bowl for more than one franchise, and only two of them have won a Super Bowl, and that's Brady and Peyton Manning. So that tells you that it's not easy to win a Super Bowl, first of all, one time with one team, but it's even more rare and hard to do it with a second team because the quarterback is so important. and Typically, guys don't change teams that often when you're that good to win one. But he just goes out there and keeps doing it, and I, I don't see anything slowing him down. I mean, certainly a, a major injury is going to be costly to him at this point because he's 43. But, you know, I, I just I, – if he's determined to do it, I don't doubt him at all. And I've said that for a long time about him. Until that final whistle is blown or until you're up by five touchdowns with five minutes left in the game – he is not a guy that I would bet against. No, you're absolutely right. He he is motivated to prove the doubters and people who don't think the world to him wrong. And you're absolutely right. He he eliminated, as far as I'm concerned, any potential doubt that he's the goat. Because if you could say, "Hey, he can only do it for the Patriots, the Patriots system," hey, he just won a Super Bowl for another team, and he's got seven. He's one up on Michael Jordan 
on rings. I mean, that's just, (laughs) (laughs) just, that's just an insane stat. And, you know, the difficulty to win a Super Bowl, I don't think people grasp that. It is extremely difficult to win a Super Bowl. You have 32 teams going after it. You have players that do anything they can to, to get to Super Bowl and to win a Super Bowl, no matter whether you're defending Super Bowl or you're trying to get it for the first time. And you can see the team that he beat was the Kansas City Chiefs, and they won a Super Bowl the year before. And they have Patrick Mahomes. I did want to give my take on Patrick Mahomes. You know, with Patrick Mahomes, I felt he did everything he could to put his team in a position to try to win this game. Barring one thing, I would say that I felt, you know, I don't know if he calls all the plays, but I did feel as if if the Chiefs wanted to be more competitive in this game, they needed to run the ball a bit more. Plus, they needed to go ahead and manufacture some long drives. They, I felt as if they tried to throw down the field 20-plus yards down the field too, many, too often. They needed to kind of get the underneath stuff going to kind of manufacture it. And um, I think that's, that's what they needed to do. And one thing, too, is that – so I, w- I will give some of that. If he's the one calling the plays, that on, on Patrick, that you needed to kind of do the small stuff to set up some of the longer stuff in the game. But he also didn't get helped out by his receivers. His receivers did not help him out. Drop, they dropped some passes. Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, they, they, that, which could have made a difference in the game. I still feel as if the Bucks would have won this game. The defense was just too strong. But it would have been a closer game for sure. But, hey, you know, Patrick Mahomes, he did the best he could. This guy, like, like some of the players, he's a magician. This guy basically – had to go run 500 yards and then just kind of like throw underhand and throw behind his back and just throw it at all types of angles as if he was Superman just to get the ball off. And he did most of the time. And when he did that, so the guys got the ball, but he'll learn yeah. from this. He'll be back. You know, so I definitely think uh, Patrick Mahomes, this is a good learning experience for him. And he did the best he could for what he had, but uh, definitely, you know, the Alan Aaron Sports Tech Radio Show, we do everything we can to give you guys, keep you entertained, do the best we can. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts, Aaron, on anything that's on your mind before I kind of introduce to our listeners who might be who's coming on our show next week. Uh, just, uh, you know, good start to the 2021 year for sports. Uh, we've got some some big things coming up here. Obviously, spring training is going to start. Pitchers and catchers report here uh, next week to most camps uh, within the next 10 days or so. Um, obviously, the Great American Race is on Sunday with the Daytona 500, so we'll talk about a recap of that next Friday. Um, really, that's about all I have here, cause, uh, other than, um, you know, obviously NBA has kind of been full swing at this point. Same thing with the NHL. Um, just really looking forward to the, the baseball season getting kicked off. And then, of course, we're, oh, just a few weeks away from tournament time with the uh, NCAA. So, um, we'll have a lot more to talk about with those specific things here as our shows get into the late part of February and the early part of March. Yeah, I mean, you definitely said it. I mean, definitely what a difference a year makes. You know, we, we started <laughs> a show right when the pandemic started, literally, when the pandemic just got started. And now we're, we're just shy of a year, coming in close to our year anniversary. 
And we've already gotten to a great start of 2021 with some amazing guests. We appreciate all of the guests that we've had. We definitely appreciate Chip today, Chip Carey coming on and joining us. You know, we've we've had Trey Ashbury. We've had from Paper Stadiums. We've had Daryl Strawberry. We've had some great, great guests already this year and more to come. Definitely it's nice that sports is back in, in swing. You know, it's still not the way our normal norm, but people are starting to get out a little bit more. They're starting to take some more safety protocols where you can have sports. I really pray and hope that Chip does get a, a, a full season in, you know, with the COVID-19 out there. And, you know, definitely I want to let fans know that COVID-19 is still out there. So be safe out there. But I'm very encouraged to, as you mentioned, the events that are coming up, Daytona 500. I'm very encouraged that this year is already off to a great start as far as sports and people getting back to somewhat normal day of life. It's not the way it used to be, but at least we're moving in the right direction. Having said that, definitely it was amazing having Chip carry on our show today. And we also wanted to kind of get you a, a little tip on who's going to be here next week. Next Friday, we have another amazing guest. We have the one and only Brandon Steiner, formerly of Steiner Sports, now Collectible Exchange. He's going to be gracing us with his presence. If Man, if you want to talk about meeting any athlete, getting an authentic autograph, getting something that means something to you, Brandon Steiner is the man to talk to. He is a somebody who I'm a huge fan of, and I've been a fan of his for years. Speaking about the pandemic, even before our show started, I was trying to get a sit-down with Brandon Steiner in New York City to sit down and do an interview with him in person. He agreed to it, and then things got a little busy. Lo and behold, the pandemic struck, and then travel is is unfortunately a disaster to New York. I'm so glad that he's going to be joining our show. He's going to shed, shed some uh, great nuggets with us. I'm excited about having Brandon Steiner coming on to our show. You will be too when you get a chance to talk to him. He has a lot to offer, a lot of motivation. And man, this guy has met as many athletes, celebrities you can think of. And he's, he's the man. So I'm glad and excited for him. So I definitely, having said that, I want to definitely thank you, Aaron, for being uh, on the show tonight. Definitely doing everything you can, and I really appreciate you. I definitely appreciate all the fans and listeners for the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk Radio Show. There was somebody who did mention about uh, getting an opportunity to have somebody represent for Black History Month. We are working on that diligently to have somebody really talk about the Black History Month on the last Friday of the month. But we're going to work on that next week. We have Brandon Steiner from Collectible Exchange coming on. So look forward to that. I will uh, basically spread that word through Blog Talk and also Facebook so you'll get a chance to meet that show and hear it live. But uh, definitely I want to thank Chip for coming on our show. And wow, what an amazing guy. Amazing to talk to him. We could have been here talking for hours. He's such a great guy. You know, what are your thoughts about Chip joining our show? No, I, I was definitely very, uh, very happy to be able to, to get an opportunity to uh, to talk to him. Uh, I reached out to him basically about 
two weeks ago, and within just a matter of maybe 10 or 15 minutes, he um, wrote me back and said, yeah, I'd be happy to, to come on. So we certainly um, really appreciate his uh, his spending an hour or so with us here tonight. Um, and, you know, hopefully we get an opportunity again. And as, uh, as we've worked on this show for about a year now, uh, kind of planning things out and kind of just seeing how things go, uh, we plan, like next week with Brandon Steiner, we plan to have more great guests on our show as time moves forward. And uh, certainly want to keep everyone entertained. You can still find us and follow us, of course, at Facebook. Um, listen to these shows uh, in repeat uh, if you haven't heard them when they were live. You know, obviously, people can't always be available at 9.30 on a Friday night, but um, we certainly will continue to, to work hard here for you. And again, want to thank our special guest, Chip Carey, tonight. It was definitely a, a great opportunity to speak to him. Alan, it's been a great show here tonight. This is one of the best we've done. So I want to thank you for, uh, for being here as well. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And everyone have a great night then. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.